Host of Ride the Vibe, broadcasting from the super cool DRS ATL studio right in Roswell, Georgia. My friend, executive producer, and uh, owner of the studio, Wahid Gomes. There wouldn't be a uh, Ride the Vibe without Wahid Gomes at the technology. I thank Wahid so much. And also, uh, there really probably wouldn't be a Ride the Vibe without. Uh, Lucy Pillar, the amazing one, uh, proprietor of All Right Now Entertainment. And I'm super stoked to have John Tiven on the show. John is an American composer, guitarist, record producer, and music journalist. And I was going to use, uh, John, the, the uh, a quote from Wikipedia, a rare triple threat, but actually, as I went through that, I went, well, that's a, that's a quadruple threat. Um, and he is credited as a writer on over 400 recorded songs, man. That, 500. 500 now? Holy schmoly. Wikipedia's got to get itself updated. That puts you in rarefied company with Dylan, right? John, welcome. Well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't put myself in the same, uh, in, in the same, same bunches you know, Rabbi Dylan. <laughs> if you want to, that's fine by me. I, I I just know that I've been working very hard for a very long time. Yeah. I've got a lot of songs to show for it. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Just impressive. Uh, and I, I have to share with you, John, uh, This uh, re the research for this show has been incredibly uh, educational for me. The wealth of your career is just uh, so expansive. And for your fans, John, that are... Um, Legion and growing you know, continually as you, you continue to hone your craft. Um, the way we format Ride the Vibe is we do, I like to call it an old-fashioned music listening party where we encourage the listeners to sit back in a comfortable environment, wherever that may be, getting a little too cool, although warm day to day down here in ATL and probably up in Nashville where you are, uh, could be out on a raft, afloat on a raft, and get a beverage of their choice and sit back and we're going to play... Um, some songs from two Steves, one Steve Cropper and one uh, Kalinich. And uh, we like uh, folks to, you know, just enjoy the music. And then we're going to have a conversation around the music. And in the studio, we are featuring a beverage drink mate, which is an innovative company out of Michigan. And they are the Carbonate Anything Drink Maker. So if y'all are looking for an alternative to those uh, deadly sugar sweetened beverages, you want to consider this drink mate unit and you can carbonate anything. So John, welcome. Welcome to the vibe. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Talk about, um, you know, talk about your relationship, um, at least at the top of the show with, uh, Steve Cropper, cause we're going to play a couple four songs off his ra latest release of uh, fire it up. So talk about that 
uh, project and your relationship with Steve, if you would, John. Okay, well, Steve and I have been friends for over 30 years. I've just loved his music ever since I started listening to music, pretty much. And the stuff with the Otis Redding just really knocked me out, particularly. Yeah. And uh, I just, I've, I've enjoyed his stuff with Booker T and the MGs yeah. and Eddie Floyd and the Blues Brothers. Uh, and the two of us have a, a lot of people that we've worked with in common. I yeah. was John Belushi's guitar teacher. He was in the Blues Brothers. Mm. I produced Wilson Pickett. He wrote and for all intents and purposes produced a bunch of Wilson Pickett records. Mm. And so in, I believe around 1992, we got to do our first record together, which was a tribute to Curtis Mayfield. I was producing for Shanakee Records with uh, my producing partner, Joe Ferry. Yeah. And they asked me to be in charge of putting the band together. And I said, well, I would love to get Steve Cropper to be the guitar player, mm -hmm. to put some new new life to these uh, Curtis Mayfield songs. So I called Steve, who I had met a few times and we were friendly, but not like really close or anything like that. And Steve immediately uh, jumped in and said, I'd, I'd love to do it. I, I'm a big fan of Curtis Mayfield's music. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think he said he was a friend of his as well. Mm. And so we got to know each other on that, that project. That was the first thing that we did together. And uh, a lot of great artists who sang on that record from Don Covey, who again, Steve and I had both worked with him as a, uh, co-writer and uh making records with him and uh jerry butler was on that project delbert mcclinton mm. so we got got to be you know got to really know each other yeah. on that project yeah. and uh we really enjoyed working together and we liked the same kind of music so when i had another opportunity to to use him on a project i i had him come in and play on the Otis Blackwell record, uh, tribute record that I did for Shanaki the following year, mm -hmm. that uh, Paul Rogers was uh, the singer yeah. on a version of Home On My Heart, and he requested that Steve play the guitar solo. Mm. So Steve was gracious enough to come in and do that and also sing background on uh, Chris Christopherson's version of All Shook Up, and we had a lot of laughs. Mm. Again, we, you know, worked on our uh, our friendship became deeper with yeah, time yeah. when I moved to Nashville which is where Steve had been living for many many years he was one of the first people who really took me in and you know welcomed me yeah. to town and invited me to a, a, a party at his house uh -huh. and I I figured well it'll be Steve Cropper and his you know 100 closest friends <laughs> and I got there and it was Steve and his wife and his kids yeah. and his father and me and my wife and my daughter. Wow. So it was, uh, I was really astounded. Yeah. That Quite an, what an honor, right? To not just exactly. be one of a hundred. Yeah. Wow. And I just sat with them and I said, Steve, you need to be making records yeah. as Steve Cropper. Yeah. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, that would be nice, but, uh, how we go about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, you write some songs and I'm sure there's some record companies that would be interested in making a Steve Cropper record. Sure. 
2002, which is when this was all happening, he said, well, who would sing? So he had been telling me that he had done some corporate gigs for Northwest Airlines with uh, this all-star band, a lot of people who had been involved with him in the Ringo Starr band that he had uh, played with. Yeah, the all-star, his, the all-star band? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the singer in that group was Felix Cavalieri, who I had uh, had come in and uh, play on my Sir Mac Rice record yeah. a few years before and was friendly with. So I said, why don't we get Felix in? He could sing and write the songs with you and me and we'll have a blast. So we started doing that very soon afterwards, came up with a bunch of songs, played it for a few labels, and they were encouraged. So we, we took it to the finish line. We made a finished record. Yeah. And uh, Steve and Felix said, uh, well, let us shop it to labels. Mm -hmm. you, you've done your work. I said, fine. And unfortunately, uh, they, they didn't find a label for it. Mm. So uh, I, after about two years, I said, they were like, well, I don't know what we're going to do with this now. I said, well, let me take it to a, a couple of people. So at that point, I played it for someone I knew at Concord Records, a guy by the name of Robert Smith. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is fantastic. Mm. What, what are you doing with this? I said, well, I'm looking for a label. He said, let me take it to my people here. And in a relatively short period of time, they put together a deal for the record. Mm. So that was wonderful that we got that out. Then um, for a, a, a multitude of reasons, uh, I didn't end up working with them on the, on the second record. Uh, and that record didn't do nearly as well. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was sort of out of the picture for that. Yeah. But then after that, I uh, approached Steve a few years later about doing, uh, and I had been working with Steve on some other records in the meantime. I had him come in and play on a Frank Black record, mm -hmm. uh, on an Ellis Hooks record. And I said, well, Steve, how would you like to do a record on your own as Steve Cropper uh, doing songs of the Five Royales? Because I knew that the Five Royales were a group that he cared a lot about. Sure, sure. Their work was inspired by their guitar player, Loman Pauly. Yeah. And Steve said, oh, sure, if you could find a label. Mm -hmm. And I called a friend of mine, Stu Find, who worked at a label called Savoy Records. And Stu uh, was very interested immediately in the project and made us an offer for the label without hearing any music. Oh, wow. I thought was a great, uh, a, a great piece of trust that he yeah, gave us course. to make a record without hearing a note. <laughs> and we got, you know, everyone from Steve Winwood to Betty Labette to Dylan LeBlanc uh, to Shmika Copeland and B.B. King to sing on the record. Mm. And that record was very successful. And that was, I think, around 2011. Yeah. And so, you know, we continued doing projects. We, we played a couple of gigs together and mm -hmm. stuff. And then I, uh, I, we had been actually, we'd been writing the whole time that we had uh, even made the, uh, the, the record, the second record that Cropper Cavalieri or Cavalieri Cropper made for Concord. We had written a bunch of things for that. Yeah. We continued writing. And 
nothing had happened with those songs. So when the lockdown came, I, I'd been trying to get people to write those, help us write those songs, help finish it. Yeah. They, they were just instrumentals. Paul Rogers uh, took one of them and, and wrote lyrics to it. Yeah. But he didn't want to get involved in a whole project per se with Steve and me because he was busy with his band. So right. we had, you know, more than a dozen songs just sort of sitting there that I thought had a lot of potential, and Steve did too. And when the lockdown came, I said, Steve, I just started writing again with an old friend of mine from up north who I hadn't written with in 20 years, named Roger C. Real. And we mm -hmm. uh, we'd had some success. Roger and I wrote uh, Midnight Train, which was recorded by Buddy Guy and Johnny Lang. Mm -hmm. We wrote a song called... Uh, Yes, man, that B.B. Uh, King recorded. We recorded uh, a demo for a song called Storm Warning mm. that uh, Michael Burks did. Uh, also a song called I Smell Smoke that Michael Burks did. So Roger and I had some history in the kind of music that Steve and I liked yep. and, and that Steve was comfortable with. So I said, Steve, why don't we get some of these songs finished? Mm -hmm. Can I just send two of them up to Roger and see what he comes up with for these songs? Yeah. And Steve said, sure, I've got nothing to lose. You know, they're just sitting there. So I sent it to Roger, and uh, Roger sang his vocals into his iPhone. Uh. No microphone, just <laughs> straight into his iPhone, uh, uh, uh. and emailed me back the vocal tracks. Oh, my gosh. So I popped them back into the, uh, the original multi-tracks that I had yeah. and did a rough mix for Steve. Yeah. And Steve called me immediately and said, where has this guy been all my life? <laughs> I love this. Can we get Roger to finish all the rest of them we have and make a record out of right, it? Right, right. So I called Roger and I said, what do you think about that? And Roger said, Steve Cropper? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I'm, I'm down. Twist my arm, yeah. So... We got all of them written, and at the end of it, uh, I said, well, do we want to bring in Roger to re-sing his vocals? Mm -hmm. And Steve said, no, the, the, the vocals sound great coming off the iPhone. It, the, uh, the EQ on the iPhone really seems to serve his vocal delivery really well. Let's just mix them the way they are. Isn't that crazy? And, huh. you know, make a record of yeah. it. So we yeah. did that. Yeah. And I sent it off to Stu Fine again. He had moved on to a new label. He was now working at Mascot Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stu flipped out as soon as he heard it, said, I must have this. Yeah. And so once again, we had a record deal very easily, very quickly. And the record came out last April, May, and has done very well for us. It was, uh, I think, number one. Uh, first week out on the blues, blues charts, charts, yeah, and stayed stayed up there for uh, over a month, and then in the top uh, ten, month, yeah, month and a half. And the and album we're talking just, about, y'all, is "Fire It Up" by Steve Cropper and John, and and the first song, the title track, uh, John. Unless I, I missed the research, Roger is uh, singing on it. Uh, oh, he's singing on the whole record, the whole album. All okay, the vocals, yeah, all the lead vocals. I love it. Record. Well, there's so much in. Um, in that brilliant um, answer that uh, I want to unpack, 
But one, uh, so the Don Cavey, the five Royals, I think uh, would be worth fleshing out because I know Don's one of your heroes and the five Royals. Uh, if people aren't familiar with them, I'd like you to talk about that. I want to play this song a couple minutes because we're, you know, want to tease the audience up to go buy it and uh, they can get it off of Steve's uh, website or J-O-N-T-I-V-E-N.com. Is it on there as well, John? No, 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 no. Send it to Steve Steve Cropper or to Mascot Records. Okay, I, perfect. I, I, uh, I'm not equipped for... Uh, Taking for sales. Okay, so website. Steve Cropper, y'all. And uh, But I want to ask you if you're uh, at liberty to say, um, based on your friendship, why is uh, Steve also known as the Colonel? Well, because he's... He's the the guy who's given the orders. He's uh, he's the he's always the head of the uh, the team. Yeah. I mean, whether it's with me or with uh, you know the Blues Brothers, yeah. he's the guy that people look to for direction because he's he's got the thing. Yeah. He's got the magic connection to the mothership <laughs> of soul and blues yeah. and everything in between. I love it. And was that, you know, where that came from? Where, where, who nicknamed him that? Or did it just evolve? I don't evolve? know who specifically, yeah. but, just you know, he's... Just curious. He's, he's he's known as the Colonel. I just call him, I call him Crop or Steve. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's, and I, I want to come back also. I want to uh, talk about your experience with uh, John Belushi as his guitar teacher. But let's, uh, let's cue up, if we could, Wahid, a little bit of Fire It Up off of Steve Cropper's latest release and of the same title, and you can buy that off of his website, Steve Cropper.
don't know about you all, but I'm fired up listening to that song off of Steve Cropper's latest release. That was uh, number one on the Billboard Blues charts for a while and then uh, stayed in the top 10 for over a month. Very cool. And uh, we're going to play about two or three more three more songs off of that album to so give you a taste of that. But uh, John, if I could go back to give me a little a bit of a taste of what it was like uh, working as John Belushi's guitar teacher. Uh, how was that? Well, here's how that happened. Uh, um, I had been in a band called the Yankees yep. in New York. Yep. And uh, we had a record out and we ran into some difficulty with our record label and sort of put a crimp in, uh, in our ambitions for the band. But we had, I guess, made a lot of fans, particularly among music critics. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I, we're at uh, the Bottom Line Club in New York, seeing David Lindley. Oh, yeah. And a couple of journalists there, uh, Timothy White, who's the editor of Billboard, and Mitch Glazer, who went on to write a lot of uh, films, including Scrooged, uh, were there. They recognized me. Mm -hmm. And they said, you're John Timmon, right? I, I said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you come to this party? Uh, there's a rap party for... Uh, the film uh, uh, Neighbors mm -hmm. that uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were in. Yeah, yeah. It's over at the Blues Bar in New York. Why don't you come with us to that? Yeah. So I said, fine. We'd, so my wife and I went to this party, and first thing, uh, Mitch and Tim uh, bring me up to Belushi and introduce me, and uh, John's like, uh, the band's here except the guitar players in here. Do you want to do you want to play guitar uh, for a couple of numbers until the uh, until the guitar player comes here? <laughs> I said, sure. You know, what what songs you want to do? He says, oh, we'll do like you know uh, a couple of you know Jimmy Reed songs, yeah. and we'll do uh, 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 Heartbreak Hotel, Ultra <laughs> Cup, something like that. Sure. I said, fine. And he hands me the guitar. Yeah. I'm up on stage and I look behind me and it's Dusty Hill and Frank Beard from ZZ Top. Oh my gosh. The rhythm section. Yeah. And and we're we're playing, you know, deep blues with John Belushi singing up front. <laughs> About fifteen minutes later, Billy Gibbons walks up uh, and I I just hand him the guitar. I said, Man, this is your gig, not my gig. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, he roars into it and it was like you know, I, I was thrilled to death to yeah. have been a part of it. Right, right. And at the end of the party, uh, Belushi comes up to me and he says, uh, uh, I love the way you play. And, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, who you play with now? And that, that very day, mm. I had auditioned for the Jim Carroll Band and passed the audition. I just joined the band that day. Mm. And I said, well, I, I just joined the Jim Carroll Band today. He says... That's my record of the year. That's my favorite of the record mm. of the year. I want you to teach me how to play guitar. Mm. I said, okay, great. I would love to do that. Yeah. So he hired me as his guitar player. I would come over to his house every uh, Thursday or Friday yeah. for about an hour and teach him finger exercises. And he wanted me to teach him how to play the solo to Louie Louie. Mm. And we would just hang out and have a blast and... 
he's just a wonderful person to be around. Was he, and, John, was he, um, this was pre the Blues Brothers movies, am I right? Oh, no, this is well after. After, Blues okay. Brothers. This is 1980, 81. Okay. This is the last year of his life. Okay, so he was not uh, doing it, I mean, because he, he was just vocalist uh, and, and, uh, on the with the Blues Brothers, so the guitar playing was something he just wanted to learn for, as a passion. Well, well, he had a passion for punk rock. Ah, interesting. And he wanted to to learn how to play guitar well enough uh, to play in a punk rock. Oh, band. interesting. He had befriended the guys from a band called Fear. Yeah. Particularly a guy named Durf Scratch. Yeah. The singer leaving, and he had done a couple of things with them, but I think he wanted to do something on his own yeah. in that vein. Interesting. And he saw me as a guy who would help him teach to him. be able to do yeah. that. So, you know, we got together numerous times to do that. We talked about all sorts of things yeah. that, you know, beyond guitars and stuff like yeah. that and developed a really sweet and deep friendship. He was just a wonderful yeah, guy, guy and would you, very, uh, would you agree with his musical spirit and, this statement the last that last time I saw him was uh, right around my birthday, uh, which is January third. So it had to be sometime in that week, and he was just about to go out to Los Angeles for the trip that would result in his passing. Passing. Wow. God. But we played at the Lone Star Cafe uh, one time. That one time, the week of January with. Uh, Peter Aykroyd's band, the Mini 14s, that's Danny Aykroyd's uh, younger brother. brother. Yeah. And uh, we got to play Louie Louie mm. in front of uh, the Lone Star audience, and he got to play the solo. Oh, he did. Really so he, he realized his dream, at least in that regard. Yeah. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Would you agree that the Blues Brothers really were a, a bolus and, and helped a resurgence in people's interest in the blues, John? Is that a fair? Oh, tremendously. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, that was just like a, a total shot in the arm mm -hmm. for the whole blues world. Yeah. In fact, at John's memorial concert at the Lone Star Cafe, uh, James Brown was one of the mm. uh, speakers there. He didn't perform, mm. but he... Uh, he was very adamant, took me aside and said, you know, John, John Belushi revived my career. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I was playing much smaller clubs mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I was in the Blues Brothers movie and I was playing bigger, bigger halls yeah. again. And people took an interest in James Brown music like they hadn't in yeah. many, many years. So, you know, without him, yeah, I, I would still be, you know, playing small clubs and not enjoying my life nearly as much. So he, he had a lot of, uh, yeah, God bless him for that. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's uh, queue up if we could, Wahid out of love also off of Steve Cropper's fire it up. Great song. And this is one that, uh, that Felix Cavalieri, uh, co-wrote with us because we wrote this track as we were writing the songs for, uh, the second, uh, Cropper Cavalieri record, and unfortunately, that never came to be in the way that Steve and I originally envisioned it. So we had this beautiful music track left over that Roger wrote the lyrics to. Mm. Love it. Out of love. Oh, 
it in the last DJ, back on Ride the Vibe. I think we've all experienced that. We'd rather be out of love. Great song. <laughs> hey, John, I want to I want to touch on um, if you're uh, if you're comfortable ch- chatting about it. What was one of your most memorable experiences from your days as a music journalist working for uh, Rolling Stone, Fusion, Melody Maker, and a host of others? If you could, if you can talk about it. Well, one of the big uh, accomplishments, uh, if you want to call it that, was in uh, their, uh, it was 73, 74, I, I had become friendly with uh, the group Big Star and their record label, Art and Records, and they wanted to put together a rock writers convention in Memphis. A guy named John King was running the promotion end of uh, basically the the day-to-day of the record label. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to fly in a bunch of journalists and he wanted me to help him put it together and figure out who should be invited and figure out how they should uh, present whatever musical acts they wanted to present. Right. So that was really an amazing experience for me to be involved with because... Number one, uh, I had never done anything even close to that before. Right. And number two, it was in, involved a lot of musical people who I really liked a lot. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, in fact, uh, the one of the opening acts, the the night of the music was uh, they had a, there was a Steve Cropper jam with Steve Cropper and a bunch of his friends. Uh. But uh, Big Star was the big the big ticket of the night. Yeah. And, uh, I was able to uh, convince uh, me and, and John King were able to convince Alex that he should put together Big Star, put back the band back together to play in front of all these journalists because mm-hmm. the band for all intents and purposes had broken up mm. uh, after this is after the first record. Came and you're out. working for which Rolling Stone fusion or another one? Oh, I was just writing for whoever. Ah, okay. Whoever was yeah. uh, was offering me uh, <laughs> an assignment. I wasn't on staff. Yeah, anyway. gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they flew me to Memphis, and mm-hmm. I helped with the prep for the uh, for the the party and the gigs and stuff. And you know, Alex was playing some tracks that he had recorded with uh, mm-hmm. some other musicians, and you know, planning on putting out a a solo record after the first Big Star record Mm -hmm. because there was no Big Star. And I said, look, you've got all these journalists here and they're very hot on Big Star. Mm -hmm. It might do you some good to consider getting Big Star to to play this and maybe continuing with the band and and perhaps making a second record. And Mm -hmm. they ended up making a second record, which was Radio City, without Chris Bell, who had left the band. Yeah. But generally, most people consider that uh, the second record, uh, Radio City, is is the classic. Yeah. Although, you know, I love the first record as well. And that record never would have been, uh, in, certainly in that form, uh, had it not been for uh, for that that convention happening the way it did and all those journalists showing the interest in, uh, in big star that you helped put together. Did you uh, ever happen to run across uh, your past cross with Hunter Thompson? 
in your I never met Hunter Thompson. Interesting. In your journalist days. Wow. I, I, I met a few of his girlfriends, but I never <laughs> met him. <laughs> Much to his wife's dismay, I'm sure. Not not you meeting him, but uh, having his having them. Well, let's uh, let's cue up if we could. Waheed Bushhog. Also, this is an instrumental off of Steve Cropper's uh, "Fire It Up." And then we'll come back just having a fascinating conversation with John. There's so much to unpack. I don't know where to go, but we'll start go with Bushhog. Just keep talking till you stop. <laughs> <laughs> off of Steve Cropper's latest release and go out and buy that off his website, stevecropper.com instead of uh, doing the Spotify thing because they don't make any money with that Spotify. Hey, John, I, I want to uh, segue from your um, days as a journalist. What, uh, what initially motivated you to gravitate away from or what caused you to, to gravitate towards the alto sax and then what caused you to gravitate to uh, so many other instruments? What was the motivation there? Well, I, I got bullied by my father, who was a big jazzer, ah. to play saxophone. Yeah. Because he, he thought that that was the instrument for me, and he didn't want me playing rock and roll. Ah. He wanted me playing jazz. Yeah. So I was discouraged from playing guitar. Ah. And... I uh, I enjoyed it initially, yeah. but as as time wore on, I I really wanted to play guitar, but I was sort of I was sort of stuck in the in the saxophone thing. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was playing baseball, and I was the catcher, and I wasn't wearing a mask, oh. and the bat came back, hit me in the mouth, and twenty one stitches later I was a guitar. <laughs> oh boy! So. Ooh. Uh, and I, I pretty much gave up the saxophone uh, 
for about 20 or 30 years until I, I mean, cause that was when I was 15 years yeah. old. Uh, and, and still, cause I, I was unable to get a really good sound out once my mouth healed because I had so much scar tissue. Yeah. But when I moved to uh, Nashville, I, I decided I was, I'd always been an alto player. Mm-hmm. I figured if I got a tenor saxophone, maybe I could deal with the scar tissue and break through the scar tissue. Yeah. So I worked on my saxophone skills for, it took me a couple of years before I was able to really get to the point where I could make a um, an embouchure that I was really happy with mm-hmm. the, the sound that mm-hmm. I was getting out of it. Mm-hmm. But once I got that, I uh, I really was enjoying it. I enjoyed the sax much more than when I played alto. So was part of that because of the you know your father kind of mandating that that's what you do, and then then once you you came to it yourself, that had a different you had a different perspective. Well, that might have been it, but also the tenor saxophone is a much broader sound, ah. much more rock and roll sound. Yeah. The alto is uh, is more of a, a a jazz instrument, less of a rock and roll yeah. instrument. Uh, Was so I I really enjoyed I enjoyed honking away. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know the more I did it, the better I got at it. So I disciplined myself to you know play a lot to break through that scar tissue. Yeah. I still play it a lot and I enjoy it a lot. Nice. Now, when, when you were, so you, it sounds like you had a a big foundation in jazz given your, your father, is that kind of the foundation that was laid for you as a, as. Oh yeah. I mean, he was into big band. He was into Count Basie and uh, Duke Ellington and uh, Lee Konitz is a saxophone player. He really enjoyed Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I heard around the house yeah. when I was younger. Yeah. And when I discovered the radio, I, uh, I found my own music, you know, every, every yeah. generation eventually finds their music and rejects the, the generation before right. it's music. And, you know, so I, I got into rock and roll, I guess in the early sixties, uh, is it is it you fair know, like to, to is it fair to say, John, that that jazz foundation? You know, I just finished uh, "Beware, Mr. Baker," uh, the <laughs> kind of scary uh, documentary on Ginger Baker, and he had a, a big jazz, you know, base and foundation. It did it, it? It seems like that's a big help, an asset to a, a. It is well. The the reality is that if you learn to play jazz, it's a very challenging genre mm-hmm. so you have to really learn the vocabulary and yeah. learn your rudiments yeah uh so it does give you that uh that exposure to you know different time signatures and stuff like yeah. that you can learn to play rock and roll without being uh a spectacular musician uh and even excel yeah you know, without really you know becoming a uh you know, a great guitar player or bass player in the traditional sense. There, there are a lot of rock and roll millionaires right. who would never be able to make it in jazz. Right, right. So, when you find somebody who can span both worlds, like you know, in drumming, you have you know Steve Jordan and Omar Hakim, yeah. who really uh, come from a jazz background mm-hmm. and have learned that as well as the rock and roll thing and the R and B thing, then 
you know, you've, you've got it all, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, as B.B. King said, you know, if you can play the blues, you can play anything. You know? <laughs> the blues is, is a foundation yeah. of so many musics. Right. So Absolutely. I had the benefit of, of a lot of, a, a wide musical experience. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my uh, recent finds that I in turn gave to, uh, gave the CD to Lucy was uh, Paul Rogers tribute to Muddy Waters, which is a great CD. Well, Waheed, if we could, let's uh, cue up. She's so fine. This is the last song we're going to play off of Steve Cropper's latest release, Fire It Up. And then we're going to shift gears and take it to the 15th level. But we're going to do She's So Fine. Shout out to my friend Waheed Gomes, the executive producer of this show and owner of DRSATL. And thanks to Waheed, we're running this show uh, straight through without any commercial interruptions. How cool is that? That was She's So Fine. I hope everybody in their life has a lady that's so fine like that. That was Paul Rogers doing some writing on that along with uh, John and Steve. 
Cool stuff. And we're going to make a transition, uh, John. We're going to go uh, play a couple songs from another one of your friends, uh, another Steve, Steve uh, Kalinich. And uh, this is off his latest release and second release, I believe, called Scrambled Eggs. Is that right? Yeah, well, Steve has a uh, uh, long history with uh, the Beach Boys. Beach Boys, yeah. Um, and also with uh, P.F. Sloan, who's an old friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, that, that's how I met Steve, is through P.F. Sloan. Uh, I had produced a, a record with, with uh, Phil Sloan, P.F. Sloan, his first in a long time. And he, he said to me, would you be interested in meeting my friend, Steve Kalinich, who wrote two of the songs on this record yeah. you just produced? And I, I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'm always up for meeting new collaborators and stuff like that, as long as they're nice people. Sure. So uh, we met and became the best of friends. Mm. And he's just a, as, as Phil Sloan says, Steve Kalinich is a magical being, and he is. Yeah. He's like the... A Jewish leprechaun. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's a that's a that's one to get your head around that one. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a really funny. I love it. Guy and uh, he's written. He wrote the lyrics to uh, uh, "Be Still" and "Little Bird" for the Beach Boys Beach back Boy. in 1967. Yeah, and has written with uh, all. All three Wilson brothers, as well as Mike Love and David Marks mm. and Al Jardine. So he's the only one who stayed friends with all. Of them. Wow! And in fact, he wrote the lyrics to the uh, Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney duet, a "Friend Like You." Mm. So that's that's a pretty nice feather to have. Yeah, amen to that. Well, let's hear this uh, song, 15th Level. This is the first uh, song off a of side A, and this is and featured. This is, uh, Features Frank Black, Black yeah, uh, Black Francis from the Pixies, yeah, uh, singing with Steve. Steve, uh, love it. Scrambled eggs, fifteenth level. Let's cue it up.
Inside the Vibe. Michael Litton, the last DJ, just having a fascinating conversation with John. And I believe, John, that's uh, your wife, Sally, on bass. Is that right? And then you're playing some guitar and, and on most everything else on that song? Yeah, uh, that's a lot of times when I make records here at home. Uh, I just do as much as possible here without... Uh, without any help from anybody outside of the house. So, it's, yeah, that's me and Sally, and I, I think Mickey Curry on the drums. Drums, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I know you mentioned that this is Steve's second record. Uh, you should probably let people know that his first record was called The World of Peace Must Come, mm -hmm. and it, I believe it was recorded in 1967 or 68, mm -hmm. produced by Brian Wilson, who did all the music to it. Wow. That's crazy. What a connection. Well, and we're just, the time is flying by, but we would be remiss if we didn't get in one more song of Steve's off this Scrambled Eggs album. And this is uh, Who Changed Your Meds? Gotta love that title. And uh, it's a duet with Becca Bramlett, the uh, daughter of Delaney and Bonnie, if I have that right, John. Is that? You do. She's a fantastic singer, lives here in Nashville. Yeah. And just a wonderful person. And, uh, uh, just a, a very light spirit. She, uh, she's just a, like a, a little angel. And would strongly encourage folks to go check out some of her solo work after you hear this uh, duet. So, Wahid, if we could, who changed your meds? <laughs> DJ, make sure you change your meds, y'all, because you don't want to be avoided like a skunk. <laughs> 
Well, I can't believe this hour's just flown by and uh, I barely scratched the surface <laughs> on uh, chatting with John. Just such a wealth of, of uh, discology, musicology, whatever it might be. But uh, John, it's just flown by and thank you so much for joining us on Ride the Vibe. My pleasure. Thanks, Lucy Pillar, for the introduction. God bless. We're out of here. Michael Litton, the last DJ host to ride the vibe. Better late than never Here's my thanks to Every place my song on the radio